Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Patricia Chelsland, who is Professor Emerita at the University of California, San Diego. Her research interests span many areas, including morality, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It is so, uh, so nice to be here and to have a chance to talk to you. Yes, thanks for doing this. So, um, you know, I was reading through your website and uh, I guess we'll start with some simple questions, um, such as how does the brain work? Oh, uh, yes, okay. <laughs> you say the fundamental questions from Plato onwards are these. How is it possible for us to represent reality? How is it that we can represent the external world of objects, of space and time, of motion and color? And how do we represent the inner world of thought and desire, images and ideas, self and consciousness? So, so there are a lot there. Um, so, so do we have an idea how the brain works? Well, we have some idea of how very simple nervous systems work. Um, for example, C. elegans is a very tiny worm that has about 302 neurons. And in the case of C. elegans, we can say quite a bit about um, how it makes decisions and how it moves and how it moves toward things or away from things that uh, it doesn't like. But it's certainly true that as soon as we're talking about a really complex brain, and all vertebrates have complex brains and all mammals and all birds have super complex brains. There's just a tremendous amount um, that we don't know. Yeah, so C. elegans, it's interesting. Uh, I understand that they have something like 300 neurons. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, at least from our perspective, a simple system, whereas a human has something like 80 to 100 billion neurons and 10,000 synapses on each neuron. Um, so, so one of the so I have a bit of a bias here, Pat. So I, I'll put that out uh, so that we can <laughs> talk about it. Um, 
complexity. So I hear people say the human brain is the most complex thing in the known universe. And I object to that at many levels. First of all, we, we don't really have a good clue what is out there in the known universe. Uh, indeed, uh, we don't. <laughs> I, I've often wondered the same thing. How about, in fact, some people say it's the most complex thing in the universe. And I'm thinking, you know, like, how far out of this solar system have you been, for example? <laughs> yeah, so there's a sort of human centrism in our approach to this. Yeah. And then I, I also think about complexity it's not necessarily a good trade. You know, I used to be an engineer a long time ago. If somebody came to me and said, I designed a car, it's extremely complex. And I'll ask, you know, uh, what is the reliability? What is the durability? What's the maintainability? And, you know, if uh, he or she says, well, those things are not that good, but it's extremely complex, <laughs> um, that won't be a good car, <laughs> right? Yeah, and so. Okay. And so when we look into the brain, we have this lot of neurons, lot of connections. It doesn't seem to be very elegantly designed, at least from an, you know, sort of an industrial design perspective. Uh, the wiring diagram is very messy. Uh, it's sort of an accumulation of errors in evolution uh, to some extent. So, so how, how do you think about the brain from your perspective? Well, your, your last point is right, of course, and that is that all nervous systems are the product of biological evolution. And there are many constraints in biological evolution that help us understand why a particular design was selected for as opposed to something else. An engineer starting from scratch might design uh, a device in a certain kind of way, but that, of course, if you're Mother Nature and you want to improve, let us say, vision, then you really have to make small adjustments to the system that's already there in order to, to, um, in order to make progress. So that's one thing. The other thing is that although you know, we sometimes sort of shake our heads at the complexity of the brain. There's one thing that it is amazing at, and that is its use of energy. It is very energy resourceful. It roughly runs on, I've forgotten exactly, but, you know, like a 10-watt light bulb. And um, and that's you know when you're when you're walking and talking at the same time for all of the kinds of things that you're managing to do. If you're a hockey player and you're you're aware of things, you're doing visual processing, tactile processing, incredibly complex motor control, um, and the brain manages to do that in a timely fashion and with great conservation of energy. So there's certain aspects of this that, that make you realize that the, the evolution of nervous systems has been going on for a long, long, long time. And a lot of the really crappy aspects <laughs> have been selected against. <laughs> and that what you end up with is actually pretty good. And, um, I think part of the reason that we dwell on the complexity is that we're finding out constantly things about the system that you might not have predicted. So, for example, 
we are all now very comfortable with the idea that one neuron can signal another by sending neurotransmitter across the synaptic cleft and that it binds to receptors on the receiving side. And, and, and so we build our models with that idea in mind and we realize sometimes the transmitter is excitatory and sometimes it's inhibitory. But now it turns out that the receiving cell can also send signals back to the sending cell. And so now you have a dynamic relationship between neurons that makes for a lot of power and a lot of subtlety. Mm. So every time we discover something like that, we think, oh God, it's so much more complex than we thought. Although there is a sort of beautiful simplicity to some of these discoveries as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. So the energy consumption aspect that you mentioned is we have got nowhere close to that in any kind of artificial system. Oh, not uh, even. Yeah, no. not even close. No. Yeah. And, and, and so we have this So it's sort of an analog computer. Um, you know, we moved into digital computing and the architectures that we build are substantially different. Uh, it's an electrochemical signaling, so it's quite slow in the grand scheme of things. Yes. But as you say, it does uh, really, really interesting, interesting things. And uh, as you know, there is a huge, this deep, uh, deep learning uh, revolution going on. Yeah. And in supervised machine learning, as you know, we need a large amount of data. We need a large amount of uh, labeled information <laughs> before we can teach an artificial neural net, you know, what's a cat and what's a dog. But the brain appears to do that with very few samples. Yeah. And so I often felt that in the AI world, we are on a wrong path. If our attempt is to sort of try to see how the brain does things, I, I don't think we are we are on the, in the right path to do that because it seems entirely different. Well, there certainly are really important differences. And one of the ones is, is the one that you mentioned, and, and that is, you know, it's it's very easy when you have a puppy to to do one shot learning, um, and it's also quite interesting that they can do things without seeming to be learning at all. So, for example, um, I have a dog who's now about two, but um, when I played with her when she was very young, I would talk to her and I'd smile and I'd smile. She smiles at people now when she meets them. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't look very beautiful, mm -hmm. but she's doing it because she's imitating. And, yeah. and imitation is a hugely important thing for almost all, well, certainly for all mammals, but probably for many vertebrates as well. Um, and, uh, and so that's not something that, that we have a deep learning analog for. The other thing, because I'm, of course, interested in, in social behavior, is, is that, again, this is in all mammals and all birds, we see this, that there are pathways in wiring to ensure that animals are social. And in the, in the first analysis, what that means is that the, when the mother gives birth to the offspring, there is a connection, a very strong connection. She is instantly bonded to that baby. 
uh, or babies more likely. And as she cuddles and nurses and so forth, they become bonded to her. And so what that means is they like to be together. They find social distancing or uh, uh, isolation very painful. And it sets the, the platform for sociality. And we don't really have anything like that that's comparable hmm. in, um, in AI. Now, Terry Sanofsky and I, of course, we've collaborated on, <clears throat> on a number of projects initially, the, the computational brain. And because he uh, was so involved in some of the early models of AI, of uh, brain style AI, uh, we talk a lot about, you know, whether there might be ways in which the social circuitry can be part of, of an AI device. But I think it's at this stage extremely unclear how that could be. But in the absence of that, and in the absence of sort of motivations such as ambition or, you know, the desire to please or or compassion in, in, the, in the light of a tragedy, it's hard to see how AI can have a success in, in the social domain that's comparable to what we see in, in mammals and birds. Yeah, so, so when I talk to neuroscientists, Pat, they, they will tell me that we are nowhere close to understanding the brain. Yeah, when yeah. I talk to computer scientists, you know, some of them are counting the days uh, to what they call the singularity. I and, uh, you know, so so I say, so so I'm of the opinion that uh, things, anything can be reduced into data and process. And and I want to talk, uh, get your perspective on consciousness and other aspects of the brain that we don't uh, quite objectively understand. But I'm of the opinion that anything emotions, uh, feelings, um, sociability, anything can be reduced to data and process. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, when we forecast uh, developments into the future, we often get it wrong. You know, people say yeah. we're going to get it done in 10 years. We are probably going to get it done in 100 years or 200 years, right? So I'm of the opinion that we will get there, but it's going to take a long time because I don't see, um, at least from my perspective, I don't see anything special about the, the process the brain is going through. Do you have a different view? Well, I mean, I think it's a physical process, all right. Um, but in as much as there are many aspects to it that are really fundamental that we really do not understand. Um, it's hard to comment. I mean, it's hard to have a, an informed opinion, shall we say. I mean, one of the things that uh, impresses me, I think, is how little we understand about motor control. Now, bear in mind, of course, that from an evolutionary perspective, the uh, selection of, of an animal as it survives and reproduces hugely depends on motor control. If you don't have motor control and you can't eat and feed and fight and reproduce, you're a goner. Now, once you get to, to a mammal, the, the structures in the brain that are involved in motor control 
are not just kind of one. It's not just the motor cortex, for example, although that is one, but there are, are is also the striatum, otherwise known as the basal ganglia. There's the cerebellum. Um, there's the spinal cord. There's the, the neuromuscular junction. There's the behavior of motor neurons. Now, here's what we don't know. <laughs> I mean, we know almost nothing about how any of that really works, but we certainly do not know how it's all coordinated, such that within a few milliseconds, I can execute a behavior. I can execute a behavior that is knowledgeable. For example, as I'm speaking, there's a behavior which is, from the point of view of motor control, it's so effortless that we think it must be easy. It's incredibly complicated. Um, because of, amongst other things, this issue of coordination across many structures. So, um, I, I mean, I think one of the things that's so fun about neuroscience, actually, is that the more you learn, the more you realize that there are certain kinds of problems that the evolution of nervous systems solved that you didn't even know were there. Right. We still really don't know what the cerebellum does, and yet it has as many neurons as the cortex. We know that it's important for coordinated behavior, but okay, I mean, you know, that's a pretty big uh, <laughs> description. Um, so, and it's funny, it's always struck me as funny, and I think most students of neuroscience, it's funny that all of the output of the cerebellum is inhibitory. Well, how can that be? How can it have a role? And, and nobody has satisfactorily answered that question. So I think the really deep, hard problem of the brain is the problem of motor control, because yeah. it involves essentially the problem of how the brain works. Yeah, so uh, this may not be the right way to think about it, Pat. So, you know, I, I think about hardware operating system and applications. Sure. And and much of the motor control aspects, at least it appears to me that uh, there's a lot of autonomous systems uh, in the in the human mechanism. Um, so, so we take in 2000 calories, I think something like 60, 70% of it is going to autonomous systems to basically keep the machine going without you know you doing anything anything about it. Uh, and so the, the intention of the brain to do something non-autonomous takes uh, very, little, very little part of the energy budget, uh, presumably because from an evolutionary perspective, we didn't really do a lot except perhaps go and hunt and you know, bring meat back. Uh, and so, so do you see, do you see the brain as sort of changing in some ways because um, we have a higher need of non-autonomous activities in some in some sense in the for a modern man, right? Well, I mean, by autonomous, do you mean something like a a reflex? Uh, I mean, because there's very little that we do that is sheerly reflexive. I mean, even the knee jerk <laughs> reflex, so called, 
you grit your teeth when the doctor is is about to strike uh, the hammer on your knee, and that will have an effect on the the um, the power of the reflex. Yeah, I meant by autonomous, I meant you know sort of um, keeping the heart going, keeping all the organs going. So if we look at the two thousand calories that we take in, nearly fifty percent of that is going into you know keeping the body going. Uh, that doesn't require any intentionality from the brain. Well, oh yeah, okay. I mean, you know the, but but bear in mind, of course, that all of these systems, like the heart or the kidneys or uh, whatever, um, are connected to the nervous system. The vagus nerve innervates all of these things. Yeah, and. Um, but but I mean your point is right that that my stomach digests without my worrying too much you know I don't have to say that come on get get going there you know move it move it um, but um, but I I I I guess I find it very counterintuitive to separate out um, the parts that are. Um, as it were, goal directed from the parts that aren't. I think that that the intermeshing of every aspect of of these these systems kind of speaks kind of speaks against that. Um, yes, and and you know, don't undermine the difficulty it is to to live off the land. I mean, for uh, foraging animals have a really really tough time. Um, even even very successful foraging animals, like say a wolf pack, who has to do it jointly as a group, they're successful only about ten percent of the time. And so, um, and and you know, if they're not successful often enough, they die. So. Uh, I, I guess I'm not quite sure. I, I have a feeling I'm not understanding your point. <laughs> yeah, so um, I was separating uh, the autonomous systems from intentions uh, to look at, you know, suppose I create a machine with a simple objective function, um, let's say two-factor objective function, which is, let's say, sustenance and replication. Right, uh, there is nothing else that the machine needs to do. It has to sustain itself. Yeah. So it has to take, you know, some sort of raw materials in, convert that into energy, and it will sustain itself. You know, recharges batteries and so on. Then it has to replicate, um, and you know, it has to come up with a process of replication. Now, if, if the objective function is somewhat simple like that, then um, most of the stuff could be done autonomously. So, so you know, so what, what I'm thinking about is all the sort of the nice things that we think about, consciousness, um, you know, uh, uh, imagination, morality, um, all of that stuff is a little bit uh, extraneous, I would say, to that to that objective function, if that objective objective function is pretty simple, as I as I postulate. Well, it, in 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 evolved biological organisms, it isn't separate. I mean, reproduction, for example, 
is not separate in mammals from a lot of emotions. For yeah. one thing, it's very competitive. Um, often uh, when the offspring is born, there has to be these powerful emotions that involve secretions from the ovaries, they have uh, secretions from, um, from uh, 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 activity by the vagus nerve, activity by the heart, by the, and, and, um, and if those things don't happen, the offspring don't survive, and then you don't have reproduction. Um, I mean, it, so, so I, I'm inclined to, I mean, I think you're touching on a really interesting point here, which is, from my perspective, is that that distinction between the autonomous functions on the one hand and that sort of playtime functions on the other hand, uh, I think that really doesn't hold in the case of biological organisms. It's more on a spectrum. How about the C. elegans? If you go back to the 300 neurons, the yeah. C. elegans have. Do, do you think that's largely autonomous? Well, I mean, they, they can be affected by all kinds of external stimuli that will have an effect on whether they feed and whether they reproduce and, uh, and so forth. So I, I don't know. But, um, but certainly by the time you get to much more um, advanced and, and predictively powerful nervous systems, You've got things where I, I think at best you can talk about a spectrum um, where there are, are maybe very autonomous things way out here. But, but I mean, you know, when I'm fearful, for example, that has an effect on my digestion because of the way the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems interact. Um, so the autonomy, I think it's an engineering abstraction that works maybe quite well for vacuum cleaners, but I don't think it works very well for biological organisms by and large. Yeah, so, so um, my hypothesis that I know nothing about this, right? So, so my, <laughs> my hypothesis is that complexity is maybe giving us the wrong signals yeah. because you know we can look at the output of a human system and we say we do so many different things we have so many emotions we are social we are intelligent uh, we can do thought experiments we can abstract we can do mathematics and we say we are really really complex and hence we can't really understand the brain because it, it's just too complex to even Embark on oh, I would never say such a thing. <laughs> I would never say, I mean, that's David Chalmers. That's not me. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah. I mean, philosophers are fond of saying that those kinds of functions can never be understood in terms of the brain because it's an employment issue. They want to be the ones <laughs> who tell us all about it without data. Um, so, no, I would never say we can't understand. I think we have made amazing progress in the last two decades. 
Um, and, and, you know, one of the glories of science, of course, is that you make progress and then you find there's a whole range of questions that now you're facing that you didn't even know were there. And I think that's how it is in neuroscience. But I mean, we do know things now that we had no clue about 50 years ago. I mean, the hippocampus is the great case in point. Um, and, um, and it, it, it was a, mo was a monumental discovery when we first learned about its role and then everything since then has taught us how it, central and important, um, spatial knowledge is and extensions of spatial knowledge and how the hippocampus does that. Yeah, I want to go into that. So you have a recent paper I find really, really fascinating. So morality and the brain, the right hemisphere and doing right. Um, I mean, a lot of people have talked about the difference between the left brain and right brain. And, um, uh, you know, having grown up in South India and gone through engineering schools, I think I, I lost my right brain somewhere. Uh, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> when I was 22, uh, but but they are different, right? They they do different things and they specialize in different things, and this might have been an evolutionary quirk. Do we have some? Uh, if you go back, uh, go back in evolution, when the specialization might have started, the the left brain, right brain specialization. Well, it it's it's a hard question. It, for, for, for one reason, and that is, you know, um, when we talk about left hemisphere and right hemisphere, we're talking about mammals, because only mammals have cortex. Now, let me qualify that, because that's not quite true. Um, birds have a structure that is differently laid out, but is functionally equivalent to mammalian cortex. Now, what we don't know is how you get from a reptile that has what uh, a turtle has and used to be called dorsal cortex, but it's nothing like mammalian cortex. So dorsal cortex has maybe two layers if you're generous, or oh, maybe, it, maybe it over here it has a bit like three. But you look at mammalian cortex and there's this huge gap between dorsal cortex and mammalian cortex, where we don't understand how you get from how, how mother nature got us from dorsal cortex to mammalian cortex. So mammalian cortex has these six layers. They're precisely defined with very different cell types doing very different things, having very different connections within a, a particular layer. And and of course, when you're born, there's not much there except a few neurons and then they grow and the arbors, the tree-like structures on all of the neurons grow at a tremendous rate. Um, you know, something like 10 million synapses per minute when you're, when you're an infant. So, so what we really don't understand is where the heck this mammalian cortex, avian cortex, where it came from. And we don't really understand what drove 
the uh, selection of cortex as as we now know know and love it. Um, and there's there's a deep sense in which we don't really know what cortex does or much of what cortex does. Yeah, sorry. You know, I was just uh, so when dinosaurs were around, it was yeah. an intensely competitive environment. Absolutely. And um, it would have required mammals to continue to move up the sort of the intelligence curve, so to speak, uh, to, to survive, really, right? And then uh, they got a lucky break. <laughs> One day the whole thing was yeah. wiped out and they, they became kings. Uh, but I think that probably the evolutionary process uh, was going on in a highly competitive environment requiring uh, requiring innovation, requiring uh, development. Uh, they say that um, uh, they can show domesticated animals uh, is is um, they they continue to shrink their brain over time. Yeah. Um, and, and the reasoning is that they don't have any more challenges. You know, their food yeah. is taken care of. Yeah. They have a secure environment, and but so you're, brain missing is just, you're missing something. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the difference that makes all the difference, and that is being an endotherm. So a turtle is a cold-blooded animal, a shrew is a warm-blooded animal. Gram for gram, uh, a warm-blooded animal has to eat 10 times as much, has to have 10 times the calories. So the real competition comes from the fact that if you're a lizard, you can lie around and not eat anything for 10 days. If you're a little mouse, uh, you can't do that. Now, the advantage, of course, for the endotherms, the warm-blooded animals, was uh, that they could forage at night. All those fancy dinosaurs and, and reptiles and all those guys, they have to wait until the sun comes up. And here are these little proto-mammals running around in the dark, eating up everything they, that they can. So, so I think that then, of course, eventually there, are, there is competition within the mammalian uh, uh, class because then there, there was diversity and so forth. But, but being nocturnal, uh, and it was a tremendous advantage, but it did mean that you had to eat a lot. Yeah, so that, that's very interesting. So being nocturnal gave them two advantages. One is they could hunt when they're less likely to be hunted. Yep. And they could catch. Yes. Um, and so, yeah. so they, <laughs> they yeah, were asleep, so you just helped yourself. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. But what we don't have are fossils that would help us understand the transition to, to warm-bloodedness and, and how the nervous system changed. I mean, obviously, you get to a certain point where the mammals, the, the, the proto-mammals are out-competed by the real mammals, so to speak, um, probably because, they're, because the real mammals have cortex and they can just do so much more by way of prediction and classification and pattern recognition and all that stuff. So we don't have proto-mammals anymore. We just assume on the basis of there being this gap that, that they had to have been there. Yes, it could have been sort of an evolutionary quirk that, that fit. Uh, we couldn't quite yeah. tell. 
without yeah. data. But but coming back to the human brain, yeah, could you talk a bit about sort of the left and right brain specialization humans have, and and how how that how that works? Well, I I don't know really that we understand terribly well how how specialized it is. I mean, for for a while there was this idea that the left was all about language and the right not. But lesion studies showed that actually the, the prosody of speech, the, the line that you follow, like I might say, you know, is that, a, is that a flower or is that a flower? Very different prosodic lines. Yeah. And people with right hemisphere lesions um, may still have quite good language, but they often have very flat prosody and they don't hear it very well in, in others too. So, so the idea that, that language is strictly a left hemisphere function kind of got the kibosh. But the other problem was that Liz Bates um, and her colleagues at uh, UC San Diego began to study infants with hemispherectomies. Now there are very, very few of them, of course, but they studied all of them that they possibly could. And, and in every case, it turned out that if the left hemisphere was removed, the right hemisphere did just fine mm -hmm. in, uh, in all aspects of language. Right, and, from the, right from the beginning. Right, right, from, the beginning. right from the beginning. Yeah. And, um, and they even noticed that, uh, and this was not a big effect, but they had, their population was sufficient to allow them uh, this um, hypothesis that the infants who lost the right hemisphere through hemispherectomy had slightly later language milestones than those who lost uh, the left hemisphere. So, so uh, there's an awful lot there that, that we don't, really understand. It does appear though, again, this is from lesion studies in humans, that there are some differences in balance between um, the so-called dark emotions, which dominate the right hemisphere, as opposed to the more lighthearted emotions, which tend to dominate the left hemisphere. Um, but, but there's an awful lot that, that we really don't understand. But the amazing thing is how plastic the system how, is. How plastic yeah. the brain is. So, so, so in some sense, if the initial conditions are set, um, so the specialization is not necessarily an initial condition. You, you have a hardware that is roughly similar, yeah. left and right. Yeah. And then maybe there's a slight incremental difference between the two. Yeah. That could be. And if you have both of them, then they tend to specialize in one or the other. Uh, just from an efficiency yeah. perspective, uh, I guess that that's what happens, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Although it's it's clearly not random because um, for speech uh, sounds, just you know the, the grammatical and and sensible aspects of speech. Most people have left hemisphere dominance for that. Um, and even most left-handers have left hemisphere dominance for that, interestingly. But, but more left-handers have right hemisphere dominance for language 
than right-handers have right hemisphere dominance for language. So it is a random. There's something that pushes it more to uh, the left hemisphere than, than to the right. But as you say, it's very, very striking from these early infant data from Liz Bates's lab that, that you can lose a whole hemisphere. And it's not a big problem. You can still do okay. So I was just wondering, Pat. You know, the if you if you have the first first language um, where you you know where you grew up, yeah, I would imagine the left brain at some point becomes sort of autonomous in the sense that you know it, it specialized in language right from the beginning. It would be quite interesting to look at somebody who moved from one language to another. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's sort of confusing the brain in some ways, right? You, you take the language center and sort of retrain it. Yeah. And, and I, I was wondering if the right brain has a role to play there. So, yeah, the, the, we won't have enough data on this. You know, you, you have to sort of <laughs> remove the right brain in transition, so to speak. Well, there there are data, but I, I can't remember the details. But the data come from... Um, psychologists, experimental psychologists who have looked at bilinguals, trilinguals, multilinguals, and um, put them in the scanner uh, in, uh, to, to see if they could see differences between the hemispheres, but within the left hemisphere, if they could see different regions that would be active as a function of which language the person was using. And my recollection is that there are some actually kind of surprising sort of separations of the language activity as seen through uh, through the scanner. But what that actually means at the neural level, God only knows. Yeah, yeah. The, the language aspect of left brain is a little puzzling for me. I would imagine language requires, you know, sort of understanding the, the person you're talking to, a lot of the visual cues, a lot of uncertainty there. I would imagine the right brain has a huge role to play in language, but that's not the case, right? Well, I think it does. I mean, they, the, the data suggests that in, in understanding and so forth, the, the right hemisphere does. But, but you know, um, I mean, the, the sort of bad old Chomsky days where we were sort of given this picture of what you needed to learn a language. And of course, as you know, initially he thought that all of the grammar was innate. Uh, and, uh, but, but clearly it, the, the subcortical structures play a critical role in skill acquisition of every kind. And if, for example, you think of language use on the model of a skill, first of all, not just on the model of a sort of Chomskyan cognitive achievement, but as a skill, um, then, then, of course, now we're talking about reinforcement learning, about the ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens. These are all deep subcortical structures that all vertebrates have. 
And it's clear that they're very much involved in, uh, in language acquisition, pattern recognition, and, and so forth. So exactly how that all plays into left hemisphere, right hemisphere, I think is not yet understood, but it will be. Yeah, I guess at some point, um, we, it won't be plastic anymore, right? So if you were to uh, lose part of your brain after, let's say, 10 years, 15 years, then it's sort of lost in some ways, right? It cannot really rewire itself. Well, the brain is always somewhat plastic because you're still able to learn some things yeah. uh, and you're able to, uh, I mean, this is a hippocampal story now. I mean, you're able to learn a, a new route through a, a new grocery store that, that you've just discovered. Not anymore, not after Google Maps. <laughs> that's all gone. Oh, yeah, that's too bad. I don't use Google Maps because, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, so, so uh, the brain does keep, keep learning and, and, and that means new structure does keep being made, but it's never made at the rate at which it was made when, when you were first born, where the rate is absolutely tremendous. And as you know, there's not just, you know, a, a, a flowering or a, a bush, a bushiness that, that comes into play. There's also cutting back. So there's a small cutting back period when the infant is about two, but a major cutting back period, pruning, uh, in adolescence. You will lose it. And then there's that. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. So, so an old skill you might've had as, as a youngster, say, you know, playing the piano or the trumpet or something. If you haven't done that in 15 years, you're going to be, as we say, rusty, but yeah. So you might be able to pick it up again faster than uh, if you hadn't had that early experience, but it is going to be a, a, a tough slog. Yeah. Yeah. I want to touch on another paper. Um, so I want to talk a bit about the, the neurophilosophy uh, area that you have been involved in for a long time. And um, so, so you have a, a paper, um, how important is the brain to the great philosophical questions. <laughs> uh, is it important? Well, if one of the great philosophical questions is how we know anything. How, how do we learn and remember? Um, and it's pretty clear that it's the brain that learns and remembers. And we have some good ideas about how it learns and remembers spatial organization, for example. Um, and we know that sleep is very important for, for learning, um, for transfer of information from hippocampal structures into permanent locations in, in cortex. That during deep sleep, in those little periods called sleep spindles, that information gets transferred. And so it's very important um, to have deep sleep. And probably part of the reason Michael Jackson went off the deep end was that he didn't have proper sleep. He was on propofol, 
which essentially is, is not sleep. <laughs> what it does is it damps down activity and in, in cortex. Whereas in deep sleep, there's lots of activity going on, but you're not aware. So, so those kinds of those kinds of discoveries speak in in a really deep and profound way, as Aristotle would have appreciated, to questions about how we know stuff, how we learn stuff, uh, and why learning some things is easier than others, and why we forget certain things. And and now, of course, we wonder. Well, you know, when you're remembering a very important event that happened, say, a, a couple of days ago, you don't remember every single little detail about that event. So who's doing the cleaning up here? When that information is transferred from hippocampus to cortex, it's cleaned up. So the, the system knows what's important to keep, by and large, although it makes mistakes. Um, and it it gets rid of everything else. And if it didn't, you'd have a very cluttered brain. So how could that not be philosophically super important? Yeah, so I want to think that there's some sort of a change going on here, right? So in 100,000 years ago or 500,000 years ago, remembering where the water hole was or where the line wasn't uh, were really important. Uh, but today, um, remembering facts and uh, information is not important at all because you can Google it. And so, in effect, um, what the brain is really used for is really the analytics, the thought processes, the thought uh, experiments, so to speak. That's what the brain is really useful for in the modern context, not not storing data anymore, right? So w would we not change uh, <laughs> as we look forward? Well, probably these these new um, these new tools do mean that that people learn things and remember things that are different from what their what their parents learned um, or with their grandparents and so on. But um, I think that's just a, a slightly different focus, if you like. And my hunch, and this is only a hunch, is that as we increasingly understand what exactly the hippocampus is capable of learning, we're going to see that these spatial terms that we use for much of cognition, like following an argument or a uh, 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 seeing uh, the path to the hypothesis and so forth, that those are going to become less metaphorical and turn out to be a actually a reflection of the fact that much of our understanding of the world is kind of on a spatial model uh, mm -hmm. with, with, uh, with these connections and relationships that we see in overtly spatial learning uh, for example, in the rat. Um, and that's true with all mammals, I think, right? Uh, I know that mice dream and oh, yeah. they, seem be, they seem to be practicing, you know, maze running. <laughs> so, but, and not even just when they, not, not even just when they sleep. So, you know, the rat learns 
learns its root through a, a, a long and difficult maze and then you put it back in the starting position and give it a moment to rest and you're still recording and it's kind of sitting there having a rest and its hippocampus is replaying the route through the maze. But notice that, and this I think is very cool, but we don't know how it's done. It's doing it in a compressed fashion with mm. regard to time. So it doesn't it rehearse it taking the same amount of time it did to actually run it. The time is compressed. How does that work? That's a wonderful question, and people are working on that. So nature had invented fast forward or playing uh, a podcast <laughs> at 2x speed. I think <laughs> something like that, something like that. Yeah. And so, so, so I want to finish up with another paper you have. Will artificial intelligence have a conscience? Will it? Well, as we talked earlier, uh, you mean conscience, of feeling of compassion or caring and so forth. Uh, I can't see that it does now, um, but I wouldn't want to say that, you know, nothing like that is ever possible. But we need to understand quite a lot more about how those feelings actually work in us. And I, for me, one of the great developments actually in the last 20 years has been the understanding of the, the circuitry that motivates um, or that is the platform for attachment between individuals, between males and female mates in, in certain species like prairie voles, or beavers, or wolves or humans. Um, and how that is also involved in um, parental attachment to offspring and vice versa. And to a lesser extent to friends and to kin and so forth. And as we understand the causality of all of that, we might be able to recreate that in, in an AI device. I don't know at the moment uh, whether it's, it's going to be a tricky thing to do, but you know, there's always some brilliant graduate student who, you know, in the middle of the night comes through with an idea and says, oh, this, this is gonna sound crazy, but, and then, you know, so, so I'm, I'm very optimistic that, that um, things that we don't have now doesn't mean that we'll never understand them or we'll never achieve them. Yeah, so, so one thing I feel, I want to get your perspective on this, is that um, a human brain is sort of a bundle of experiences over a long period of time, right? So we, we sort of store experiences from the past and that makes a human, so every human is somewhat different from the other mm -hmm. because it's really experiences that drive emotions and you know everything else. And so the general trend in artificial intelligence is go toward what's called artificial general intelligence, as you know. And the premise there is we take a machine and it can learn anything. Uh -huh. And so, so let's not specialize the machine into a specific task. Uh -huh. let's, let's create a general machine that can run right. anything. That's fundamentally different from yeah. a human. A human is yeah. not specializable that way, right? I, I think that that that's right. We we do do a lot of different things, and but but as I said earlier, you know, basically it's all in the pay of motor control, uh, and ultimately we all we will 
succeed only if we succeed at, at the four Fs, feeding, fleeing, fighting, and reproduction. And, uh, and those things all involve motor control. So fancy experiences and remembering those experiences, why would nature care about that? Only because they enable predictions that enable enhanced motor control. You know, the enhanced ability to mate or enhanced ability to, to uh, forage. So, so there has been, I think, an emphasis on on, uh, on experiences and perception as though they are wonderful in and of themselves. And Mother Nature just kind of had a moment where she wanted something beautiful. But no, <laughs> I can't possibly be right. It's all in the pay, ultimately, of motor control. And, um, you know, because motor control is, is just something, you know, we all sort of move around and walk and wave our arms and chew and do these things. We, we don't think that it's so special, but without it, we're nothing. No wonderful experience is worth a tinker's dam if you have no motor control. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know, when we think about artificial intelligence uh, today, we think about clones. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we will clone an AGI machine. Yeah. And so if machines were to replace humans, what we're going to find are a, a large number of clones who would behave exactly the same way. Uh, but the situation we have with humans is that no human yeah. behaves the same way as other humans. Yeah, well, we got these darn things called genes, you know? God. Well, I mean, they don't have to worry about genes, the AI devices. You guys just make them all the same. But, you know, my kids are as different from each other as can be, and they yeah, they both have our genes. And uh, experiences, um, you know, sort of the accumulation of experiences. Of which course. Is, uh, yeah, which is, which is a very interesting thing. So, so in conclusion, Pat, you know, I, I know that you have done a lot of work in this area, um, neuropsychology, um, neurophilosophy, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, as you look forward, uh, give me sort of a, a gut feel, let's say five, 10 years into the future. Uh, do you think we will substantially uh, be in a better position to understand the brain um, from what we are today? So sort of the development in the neuroscience arena. And the second question is, Given the AI trends that we have, uh, do you think we are getting anywhere close to to really, you know, um, putting that into silicon? Yeah. Well, you know, Francis Crick used to always say, "You can't, in science, predict more than about five to six years in it." And 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 and. And of course, with regard to our current situation, maybe it's only two years because the discoveries in, in neuroscience change so much as a function of the arrival of a new technique. Optogenetics, for example, has completely changed neuroscience because now we can get data, not just from one or two or maybe three cells at a time, we can get data what they're, how they're behaving exactly. We can get data from hundreds and thousands of neurons at the same time. And suddenly we have a picture of the nature of the dynamics of the system that was totally missing before. So 
we're very, very dependent in neuroscience on the development of techniques. And there will be additional techniques that will allow us yet further remarkable kinds of, of discoveries. And I mean, if, if I could predict what those techniques would be like, um, I, you know, I probably wouldn't be retired. I'd be in an engineer's uh, office somewhere. But so I think it's very hard to predict. Um, and but I think neuroscience certainly will continue to make to make tremendous progress. One of the problems I think we have in neuroscience is that there are so many bits and pieces to the system. And to really make a difference, you have to have a small area and go super deep. Um, that, that it's harder to maintain a kind of picture across many, many fields to, I mean, there aren't very many people who are super good at that. And Terry Sadowski is one of the people uh, that, that I'm fortunate enough to talk to because he really is quite good at that. But um, as, as for AI, um, there are lots of people out there who think, you know, we have it, we've, we've got a long way just using neural nets and, uh, and backprop and or backprop lookalike, you know, just gussy it up a little bit. But um, we really maybe have to do something, you know, we have to break through into a very different regime, maybe getting ideas from the brain, but maybe not. Um, because as you say, I mean, the brain is an evolved uh, device. It's full of stuff that, you know, is not necessarily what an engineer would want to put in. So where the ideas will come from uh, is, is very hard to guess, but I have no doubt because people love to do this and they're imaginative and, and it's fun. And so people will make discoveries that will surprise us. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Pat. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. I, I'm sorry we can't now just go to the pub and carry on. <laughs> uh, uh, San Diego is, is probably a lot better than when I am. But uh, yeah, so we're having a heat wave. You guys had, had a heat wave as well in California, right? Well, I'm up in Canada now, in British Columbia. Oh, you are in Canada. Okay. did have three days that were, were really dreadfully hot. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, not 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 fun. My heart goes out to you. Excellent. Okay. Keep safe. <laughs> okay, yeah, you too. Take care. Thanks. Drink lots of water. <laughs> okay, <laughs> bye. <laughs> bye. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.